you would uh, take your Bibles and open to Daniel chapter 10, the book of Daniel chapter 10. The book of Daniel can be divided into two parts, the first part being primarily narrative in nature, Sunday school stories that many of us grew up learning. The second part is primarily prophetic in nature. Whereas I've been going through this series and and preparing, I would say the first half is the easy part and the second half is the more difficult part. And in fact, gets more difficult as we go along. Um, There's several things I want to point out, especially for those who have missed the past few sermons to sort of catch you up. Chapter 8, verse 1 marks a significant shift in the book of Daniel in that it is no longer being written in Aramaic, that began in chapter 2, but it is now being written in Hebrew. We can only speculate why this happens, because Daniel doesn't say, oh, by the way, notice I'm changing languages. Um, but one was, if you wish, the Gentile language. It was the language of the nations, of commerce, of uh, politics, of diplomacy. Hebrew was the language of the people of God. And as I've said before, the medium is the message. Um, The use of Hebrew beginning in chapter 8, I think, is particularly significant because now the the visions that Daniel has have to do with the people of God. So, one could argue that from chapters 2 to chapter 7, it deals primarily with non-Hebrew issues. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, great image made of four metals Uh, Chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar sets up an image to be worshipped. Chapter 4, he has a dream and he is reduced to the state of an animal until he acknowledges that God is the God of heaven. Chapter 5, we have the handwriting on the wall that Belshazzar has been weighed and found wanting and the Persians are going to take over. And then chapter 6, Daniel is in the lion's den uh, by order of Darius because he was not supposed to pray to anyone but Darius. Chapter 7 is the last chapter in Aramaic, um, but it's also the first chapter in the the second half of the book. And it's sort of an interesting overlap because you'd say, well, wait a minute, chapter 6, that that ends the first half. Now let's get into the second half. And yet we're still using Aramaic. It involves a, a vision of four beasts, which represent four empires. Now, as we saw, it seems that Daniel is going through a crisis of sorts. This is reflected, it's demonstrated in the feast that Belshazzar gives in which he brings out the vessels from the temple of Jerusalem and he desecrates them during a feast. Nebuchadnezzar would have never done this. And while Nebuchadnezzar was uh, a Babylonian and one might say he was a pagan, he was open to the reality of God and he was a man of enlightened policies. Belshazzar is no Nebuchadnezzar. And while I think Daniel could rationalize, that's probably not the right word, but he could say, yeah, I can work with this guy. I can work for Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Suddenly we're on the dark side with Belshazzar. And how is a good Hebrew supposed to exist? How is he supposed to work within such uh, a bad system? such a negative and dark system. Well, the vision in chapter 7 introduces an important, if not the primary truth, and that is that God is not against empires. He is not against kingdoms. 
That is, he is not anti-imperialistic. God's interest in empires and kingdoms is based primarily on how they treat the people of God. So, and we saw this in chapter 2 with the image, the four different things, gold, silver, bronze, and then iron and iron and clay, that the cause of the rise and fall of kingdoms does not have to do primarily with morality. They don't fall because of moral defects per se, or the social or economic factors. Um, all political systems have moral defects. If we, if we don't acknowledge that, then we're going to be in serious trouble. But rather, these kingdoms will rise and fall because the kingdom of Christ is in fact slowly but surely, silently coming and one day will cover the whole earth. However, and this is what chapter 7 introduces, the people of God who are citizens of the kingdom of God may in fact suffer in the process. So you'd say here are all these pagan empires and in chapter 7 they're uh, represented as beasts. They're bestial, they're animal-like and the kingdom of God is coming and will overcome them. Yeah, but God's people will suffer or they may suffer in the process. So in chapter 7 we read, as I watched this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them, defeating the people of God. And then later he will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. The people of God will in fact experience persecution. But if we look at the end of chapter 7, the final word is, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. By the way, this is the point that's made over and over and over again in the first six chapters. Daniel refuses to eat the king's meat, and yet he does well. The rock that shatters the image in chapter 2. Uh, the deliverance of the three Hebrews out of the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar acknowledging God's supremacy after having been reduced to the state of an animal. Belshazzar, God's hand writes on the wall. He has been found wanting. God will judge him. And then in chapter 6, God is the one who delivers Daniel from the lions. But now there is the reality that God's people will suffer. In chapter 3, they were not burned in the fiery furnace. But the time may come when God's people will be burned up in a fiery furnace. They may suffer great persecution. And this is not a small issue. So when we come to chapter 8, that's when the shift occurs. And now we're in Hebrew. Now we're, we're speaking the language of the Jews. And the primary focus from now to the end of the book has to deal with the Jews. I think Daniel may have forgotten something. He's an older man at this point. But when Nebuchadnezzar came in and defeated the Jews and took 10,000 into exile, people must have thought it was the end of the world. And then several years later, he goes back because there's a rebellion and he destroys not only Jerusalem, but the temple itself built by Solomon. This is the world turned upside down. And yet Daniel and his friends seem to fit into the system Nebuchadnezzar seems to be on some level a man they can work with. I think they've forgotten how traumatic that was. 
Now Belshazzar comes in, and we know this, by the way, from the beginning of chapter 7, because it tells us it's during the reign of Belshazzar. Um, Daniel's like, the, the world's coming to an end. How can I live in this world? Well, you did okay after Jerusalem was destroyed. You will be okay now. But, Daniel, you need to know that down the road, things are going to get really bad for the people of God. Daniel is given several visions of the future and they all appear to be much, much darker than where he is at this point. If we believe in God, we must believe that there is a meaning to human history, even though we may not understand it and it may in fact be really confusing. The things that happen are so ordered and controlled as to work out to the purposes of God. Goodness in the long run will be vindicated and wickedness in the long run will be destroyed. But if on our own we think we can somehow, through our skill, our imagination, our wisdom, interpret history, I think we may in fact be like Daniel and come to a crisis of faith. We are likely to become deeply disturbed with really troubling questions. How can God allow such a thing to happen? There have been things in human history, all we have to do is go back to the last century, that have been so shocking. One might even say unbelievable, that rock the human conscience, that it's hard for us to believe that there is in fact a purpose behind it. And at the same time, there have been stories of unexplainable blessings in which God has done amazing things for people. Chapter 9 is, does not begin with a vision. It begins with Daniel praying. It takes place in the first year of the reign of Darius. Chapter 10, which we'll look at in a bit, happens in the third reign of the year of uh, Cyrus, so a change of administration. We saw last Sunday that chapter 9 has two parts. The first part is the prayer of Daniel, which he prays in response to what he reads in Scripture. If you look, uh, go back to chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. In the first year of Darius, king of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. This is what Jeremiah prophesied. And Daniel wants to know when this is going to happen. Because the 70 years, at least since he was taken into exile, have happened. And yet it doesn't seem that there has been any restoration at all. The answer to his question is given in the last part of the chapter. Um, and let me read verses 20 to 23. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have, I have now come to give you insight and an understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. 
Just a side note for those of you who weren't here last week. The NIV has highly esteemed, but other English translations have greatly loved, which I, I think is to be preferred. Now, here's what the vision means. Look at verses 24 to 27. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble." After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So what does this mean? So I said last week, as unhappy as I am with the NIV, that they have highly esteemed instead of greatly loved, I am glad that they use, instead of weeks, which many translations have, they have sevens, because that's the word that is used. So what do the 70 sevens mean? And the 62, and you know, the 7, and the 1, um, as I said last week, I don't know. Much has been written about the 70 weeks, as people call it. Many theories have been put forward. But what I take away from this is that God wants to assure his people about the future without allowing them to become preoccupied with calendar matters. Daniel, or God tells Daniel and us through Gabriel, I've got this. I'm going to take care of the future. As dark as it will be, I will be there. God is in control. And this is what the book of Daniel is about. Now we come to chapter 10, and we will go beyond chapter 10. One could argue that the picture doesn't get any brighter, and it doesn't get any clearer, I think, in many ways. Listen as I read, beginning at verse number 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the twenty-fourth day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen, with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking and as I listened, I fell into a a deep sleep and my face to the ground. Several things to note here as we get started. We're told four things about this revelation here at the beginning. First of all, it was given to Daniel. 
This is not something Daniel comes up with on his own. He was given to Daniel. And I was reminded some years ago, I went to a conference in Bali uh, about religion in South and Southeast Asia. And I was talking to uh, an American professor and he's like, I'm sorry, I've got to go hear this guy because he's really controversial and everybody loves to hear him speak. And as a, a professor from India, so I decided I would go in and listen to him. And what he did... Um, in the midst of his speech was to say how that Middle Eastern religions are inferior to Indian religions because Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all required revelation. They required someone outside of themselves to give them this information, whereas the religions of India did not require this at all. Um, If I'd had the courage, I would have said, yes, we acknowledge we need revelation from outside ourselves. We do not think that that's a bad thing, but apparently he did. Um, We should gladly embrace the fact that Daniel is given this vision. This isn't something he dreams up on his own. He was not, we are not sufficient in and of ourselves. The second thing about this revelation is that it was true. That might strike you as strange. Why say that it's true? Well, particularly living when and where we do, where people claim to have their own truth. That's your truth and I have my truth. Uh, We need to acknowledge that there is what Francis Schaeffer used to call a capital T truth. There is truth. And what is going to be given to Daniel is in fact true. Number three, it is about a great war. And this is laid out in the rest of the vision that goes into chapter 12. And lastly, the understanding of the vision was given to Daniel. The vision was given and so was the understanding. This is not something for Daniel to figure out on his own. The second thing I would point out about what we find in this first portion is that Daniel is a mess. He is physically, I would say emotionally, mentally, he is, he's just a mess. He had mourned for three weeks, we're told in verse number two. Uh, He did not eat choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips. He didn't use any lotions, so I guess his skin was dry. Uh, verse 8, he had no strength left. His face had turned deathly pale. He was helpless. And he fell in a deep sleep with his face to the ground. This will continue. By the way, if you look at verse number 17, how can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. Okay. So this is not something that is given to someone who is sitting in a chair and who's robust and healthy. This is someone who has been devastated Uh, by various things and I think that the vision that he is given doesn't really help in that regard. I point this out simply because I think this goes contrary to um, our expectations. Our expectations are that God speaks um, to a healthy person if you wish. Um, Daniel's been getting visions and interpreting dreams for decades now. Why is this such a big thing for him? Well, to come into the presence of God, for God to speak to him, I think that this is overwhelming. Um, This is something that really um, is a burden to him, and we will see this as we go along. I would also point out the comparison with New Testament events, and I don't know if this occurred to you as I was reading it. The first is uh, the comparison with Paul on the road to Damascus that 
Um, well, let me read to you from Acts chapter 9. As he neared Damascus on his journey, journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Verse 7. Then the, man, uh, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. And likewise, with Daniel's companions, he's not alone. He's standing there on the banks of the Tigris River. Um, They don't share in the experience, but they are overwhelmed and they flee in terror. So that's the first thing. Daniel's with a group of people, but he alone receives this vision as, as Paul. But the second thing is that his vision of the man is very similar to John in Revelation chapter 1. Um... Here in Daniel 10, verses 5 and 6, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. And his eyes, his body was like chrysolite, his face was like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. Chrysolite, by the way, is referred to as oriental topaz. It is a green, yellow, greenish gemstone. Um, But let me me read to you from Revelation chapter 1, what John sees. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. That's a, a real comparison between what happens, what Daniel sees, and what John sees. And then the revelation begins in verse number 10. And this is rather extended. It will continue until chapter 12. We won't get all the way to chapter 12. But it is rather extended. I will point something out, and I'll probably mention it later. Unlike the other visions, which are very symbolic, this is, this is a spoken vision. Uh, someone is speaking to Daniel, and these are the things that he has to say to him. Look at verse number 10 of Daniel chapter 10. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you are highly esteemed or greatly loved. Consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God. Your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. By the way, a reminder, the most repeated command in all of Scripture, Do not be afraid. Again, I think that this is something for us is almost counterintuitive because we think Daniel should be used to this by now. But no, what we find in Scripture is when people are confronted with something heavenly, they are afraid. And by the way, it's, it's not just something heavenly. I think we're afraid of just about anything. And that's why we're given the command over and over again, do not be afraid. Um, what we find here is a fleshing out, in many ways, an explanation of what Daniel saw in chapter 7 and chapter 8. And it reveals something. Um, we'll see this in a few minutes. 
But there is a side to human history that we cannot see and that for the most part we don't even realize is happening. Uh, particularly living where, where we do, we have, uh, we have an election coming up in a, a couple weeks and so we tend to think in terms of human activity that what happens is because of what we do, because of how we vote. It doesn't seem to occur to us that there's actually another dimension to this the spiritual dimension, the unseen dimension. And this is what Daniel is given uh, the ability to see. Daniel finds out that he, and we are as well, is involved in this conflict. Verse number 20. So he said, do you not know why I have come to you? Look at verse number 12. Since the first day you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard and I have come in response to them. In other words, this conflict that we're about to read about, Daniel's prayers are a significant part of that. I don't know that we think that way. I think we think in terms of our vote, getting out the vote, campaigning, uh, arguing politically. I don't know that we think in terms of we need to pray for those who are in positions of authority. We need to pray for our country, um, that God would protect us. I think we know that. I just don't think that we do it. But what is the conflict? What is the conflict that is going on? It's between princes or angels. Verse number 13. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. We don't usually think of princes as angels or angels as princes, but we can assume that Michael was an angel and he's referred to as a prince, the chief of the princes. So um, that's what's going on here. The language now becomes somewhat symbolic that rather than saying the angel of Persia, it is the prince of Persia. And the man that is speaking to Daniel says that, in fact, he resisted me for 21 days. 21 days. Does that ring a bell with anyone? Go back earlier in chapter 10. That he prayed. He mourned for, 20, for three weeks. It doesn't say 21 days. It says three weeks. Well, three weeks equals 21 days. So that Daniel's prayers, his mourning during those three weeks, was in fact a part of the conflict between uh, those angels that are on God's side and those angels that oppose him and his purposes. Verse 14, now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future. For the vision concerns a time yet to come. Remember, this section is in Hebrew, not Aramaic. It's about the people of God. Okay, I've got that. Then why are we talking about the prince of Persia, which is an angel of uh, that is opposing God's purposes for Persia, and then the king of Persia? I, I thought we were talking about the Jews. Well, we're reading through the Bible together this year. And not that long ago, we read Ezra. Do you remember that, the beginning of Ezra? Uh, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. This is the king of Persia. 
God's purpose is that he, in fact, would send back the exiles and they would rebuild the temple. But the angel that is opposing God, the angel over Persia, is resisting this. And while Daniel prays, because he's wondering about the 70 years, for three weeks as he mourns, that is a part of the conflict between those angels that are on God's side and those that are opposing him. So what we're dealing with here are the Jews going back in fulfillment of what God said to Jeremiah. See, the, the, the prince of Persia doesn't want God's word to be fulfilled. God had promised after 70 years you guys are going back. And the angel doesn't want that to be fulfilled. And that's, that's why there is a conflict. Now a lot of background is given. Look, if you would, at verse 15. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I am helpless. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone, and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid. There it is again. O man, greatly loved, he said, peace be strong now. Be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. So he said, Do you not know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. So truly, there's stuff going on that we don't know about behind the scenes. Um, It's beyond our knowledge, and I would argue on some level beyond our comprehension. Verse 21, but first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. By the way, the implication here is that Michael, the angel, is the angel of the Jewish people. He is the one who is fighting to defend them. Now it is time for them to go back. And those who oppose God don't want God's word to be fulfilled. And so they are resisting. There is, in fact, this conflict going on between those angels of God, including Michael, who joins the fight, against those who do not want the word to be fulfilled. But as we know from Ezra and Nehemiah, the people of God, in fact, did go back. If we only read Ezra and Nehemiah, we're only seeing part of the picture. We're only seeing the political, the human dimension And we're failing to recognize that there is something that is beyond our comprehension and beyond what our senses can know. Now what happens in chapter 11 into verse number 12 is that Daniel is given a history lesson of what will happen. It's not a history lesson of the past, but one of the future. And let's read verses 2 and 3. Now I tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia, and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained strength or gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will appear, and he will rule with great power and do as he pleases. This is Alexander the Great. And then in verse number four, his kingdom, because Alexander died, I think, at the age of 32 or 33, and his empire was split up between four generals. Verse 4, after he appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have power he exercised. 
because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. And from this point on, almost to the end of the book, it is about the conflict between the king of the north and the king of the south. And it goes back and forth. And basically it tells us what is going to happen. And in fact, what the angel tells Daniel is precisely what happened. It's a lot of detail here. And I don't think I will read it now, but we will read it uh, next week. Um, it just it just gives a lot of detail of the conflict going on between uh, the Seleucid Empire, which took over Mesopotamia and Palestine, where Jerusalem was, and then the Ptolemies, who were in Egypt. And we know this from history, the ongoing conflict that went back and forth, and it was uh, rather involved. But what is important is what we find at the beginning of chapter 12. Look at chapter 12, verse number 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, he is the angel over the Jews, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. This is the vision that overwhelms Daniel. Daniel is having a crisis of faith. Um, what's going on? He can't, see, you know, things seem to have gotten dark. And suddenly he's given a vision of the future. And somewhere down the road, it's going to get a lot worse for the Jews. They think exile is bad. That's nothing. There will be a time of great, great darkness. But we will see that it doesn't end with darkness as we will come to the end of the book of Daniel. So, let me close. What is this all about? Daniel imagines that things can't get worse. He lives in a time of darkness. Yeah, things will get worse, he's, he's told. But the Lord tells him through these visions, and we need really to grab a hold of this, God says, I've got this. I know what's going to happen. I am in control. I've got this. It doesn't mean that God's people will not suffer. In fact, they will be defeated, we're told in chapter 7. It doesn't mean that they won't die as a result of persecution. They have. They are. They will continue. You could think of brothers and sisters in India, for example, in the last year whose church was set on fire and they, they burned to death. Yeah, God's people will be persecuted. We can't imagine it because we have tremendous freedom in this country. Um, we get upset about political matters, thinking it's the end of the world if a particular candidate would win or did win. Um, God's primary interest in empires is not about politics. And interestingly enough, not about morality or economics. It's about how do they treat the people of God. We live in a post-Christian world. I think some Christians still have not recognized that fact. But we live in a post-Christian world. In many ways, it is a world that is unrecognizable to many. That the things that happen now were unimaginable 50 years ago. But in many ways, I would say that we still have a lot of freedom. Things are not as bad. But you know what? They could... And they may, in fact, get darker. Things may continue to go downhill. We focus on the morality of it. God focuses on how do they treat the people of God. 
what we need to get a hold of, as Daniel did as well, is that through the darkness or the darkness that is to come, we need to embrace the reality that the Lord of history says, I've got this. I've got this. I am in control. In times of darkness and of tragedy, of loss, we may imagine that God has disappeared. No, he's there. And Daniel, amazingly, is given insight into something that will happen 400 years down the road, four centuries down the road. It's like, Daniel, you think this is bad. Let me tell you, it's going to get really bad. But I've got this. And I will take care of my people. They may die, but this, this is not the end of the story. We're all headed toward the new creation. Don't be overwhelmed. Don't lose hope. Don't lose faith. God is in control. I told you when we began the book of Daniel that the first six chapters, all the Sunday school stories that we know, that's the foundation for what we find in the second half. The first half seems easy to understand. You can tell the children the stories of the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace and Daniel in the lion's den. Yeah, but the principles are there. When we get to the second six chapters, the second half, I tell you that it's, it's been brutal. You know, trying to, to prepare a sermon to, to explain this to you, it's difficult. But you know what? The principles there at the beginning. God is in control. When Daniel and his friends said, no, we're not going to do that. When they were given pagan names, but they said, we're not going to eat what the king gives us. God took care of them because he's in control. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about an image and a rock destroyed it because God's kingdom will come. The children in the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar being reduced to an animal-like state. Belshazzar with his desecrating of God's utensils from the temple. Daniel and the lion said, God is in control. And no matter how dark things get, it's still true. It's still true. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are limited by our senses to what our senses can perceive. We're limited because that's the way you made us. We're finite. We're not infinite. But through Daniel, you have given us, in a sense, a peek behind the curtain to see that, in fact, there's a whole other dimension to what's going on. Our thoughts, in many ways, are far too small as we think of political campaigns and political parties and platforms. We think of weapons, of treaties, attempts at peace. Reality, in reality, there's a whole other dimension to what's going on. But in either case, from what we can perceive and what we cannot, you are in control. You've got this. May we not forget that. May we not forget. May we not be afraid, but trust in you. I thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. 
May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray for Tim and Kim as they bring Nevin home. Watch over them and each one of us in the coming days. Tomorrow, as a nation, we remember those who have served our country, those who have given their lives. We are grateful for the freedoms that we have, the freedoms that they purchased, how they protect us even now. May we always remember to be grateful. Go with us and be with us in this coming week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.